0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Samantha Law, and today we're going to be talking to Alan Thomas about his new book, Nomads and Soviet Rule, Central Asia Under Lenin and Stalin. Thank you for being here, Alan. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm currently a lecturer in modern European history at Staffordshire University in the UK. Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Sheffield, started that back in 2011. Um, and oh, so, to, to date, most of my work has been related to um, the topics covered in the book. So, the history of Soviet Central Asia and m- more broadly Soviet history, I guess.
0: So, what made you want to study the relationship between nomadism and the Soviet state?
1: So, it's the the, the project came. The book project came out of my PhD, um, and I was thinking about the PhD earlier today. and It's hard to overstate how unprepared I was to start, really. But I knew uh, when the PhD started that I wanted to study something related to identity in the early Soviet Union and, in particular, in early Soviet Central Asia in the new economic policy period, probably, so in the early 1920s. And. Um, I had a sense as well that I wanted to look at something that was related to or connected to um, national identity formation, that Soviet fostering of national identities that took place in the 20s and the creation of the five Central Asian Republics, but something that was kind of peripheral to that broader nation-making agenda, something that was touched by it but perhaps wasn't a central part of it. Um, And when I was reading through the literature on the um, that, on that history, I came across this reference to nomads still migrating within Soviet territory in Central Asia, and that really kind of captured my imagination. Um, I had a vague sense that nomads had existed in the in Central Asia before the revolution, very much so, but uh, never really thought about the implications of their continued existence into the Soviet period too. So that's something I decided to follow up on, and really the project snowballed from there, um, led me to archives in Kazakhstan and eventually Kyrgyzstan as well. And um, it became, uh, as I had hoped, something that I saw as very much connected to this broader nation-making agenda, but, but as something that was also independent of it and existed alongside it and um, and was interesting in its own right. So that's the, the kind of genesis for the book.
0: And what sort of sources did you rely on? I don't really think of nomads as great chroniclers of things.
1: Right. Right. Um, I mean, I'm also, in addition to the paucity of sources uh, from the time, from nomads themselves, although they exist, um, I was also restricted to Russian-language sources. Luckily, um, in my my case at least, most of the governance that went on in places like Kazakhstan in the 20s was largely done in the Russian language. So I was using state and party archives for the book uh, in Moscow, in Almaty, which is the old capital of Kazakhstan and in Bishkek which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan and so I'm looking at um, procedural documents often from the communist party or from various state agencies at republic level or more local level as well and then a little bit of stuff produced in Moscow as well kind of in this, the centre of the Soviet Union but um, I tried to maintain my focus largely on what was going on at, at republic level that was something I found most interesting. Um, um- So
0: were you restricted to Russian language sources by the archives themselves or?
1: uh... I I only speak Russian. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, But whilst, you know, not deliberately trying to avoid uh, sources in other languages, um, I found that almost everything I was, you know, came to my desk in the archives was in the Russian language anyway, with very occasional exceptions. So um, it was the right language to choose for the 20s at least.
0: That's what I found when I worked in Ukraine in the 1930s. It was either all in Russian or you would find the document in Ukrainian and then the next one will be the same thing in Russian.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, even if you're locked out of one document, it almost always crops up again, doesn't it, in Russian anyway?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what was life in, like in Central Asia before the NEP period? Can you set the stage for our listeners who maybe aren't that familiar with Central Asia?
1: Certainly, yeah. So the the region um, in some places has only been part of the Russian Empire for quite a brief period of time before the revolution takes place. Whereas if you take, for example, the region that's now northern Kazakhstan, that's been part of the Tsar's jurisdiction for a lot longer. Um, and as you'd expect, Russian colonialism before the Tsar state collapses has had mixed effects across the region. It's a big, diverse region, obviously. Um, for nomads in general the story is that uh, they have had their access to pasture land where they would pasture their livestock steadily depleted and restricted over the time as more and more Russian or European settlers arrive and set up farmsteads and the state partly sponsors this process, partly allows it to happen Uh, kind of spontaneously almost Um, and then in some cases kind of regulates it quite carefully but the nomads never come out well of that process and uh, so their migratory routes are ever smaller and uh, the number of nomads in the region is decreasing but fairly slowly the other thing probably worth adding at this stage is just that when we say nomads we mean a a large number of people with very diverse practices some that only migrate uh, twice a year but I include them as nomads just for the sake that what they're all doing is uh, migrating habitually as part of their agricultural practice. And that's what you know gives them their kind of unifying characteristic for the Soviet period. Um, and then in 1916, just before the Russian Revolution, of course, we have uh, an uprising in Central Asia, which in the least was uh, partly catalyzed by the Tsar's efforts to conscript Muslim subjects to contribute to World War One. So this dramatic wave of violence. Then, of course, you have the revolution in civil war. Uh, Nomadic regions are hit hard by that conflict. Uh, A lot of their livestock are requisitioned by the whites or the reds during the war. Um, And there is some effort to declare independent statehood in parts of Central Asia. Um, For example, the polity Alash, which uh, is declared by some Kazakh intellectuals. But the the end result, of course, of the civil war is the Bolsheviks very much, much take charge of the whole region. So the nomads are entering the NEP period very much impoverished. Um, and that's partly a kind of long-term process of colonialism and also a short-term process of pretty acute violence. Um, and they have very li- limited, uh, I guess, access points to the new elite that's about to take charge. Um, not many representatives in the central party, of course, and not many means of communication with the Bolsheviks as they take take over.
0: Were nomads part of any pre-revolutionary nationalist movements or were they peripheral to that too?
1: Uh, My, it's a very good question. In in the in large part, I think most of the nationalists who um, operate in Central Asia prior to and during the revolution and civil war are presented as intellectuals who have had a um, an education in an urban environment and kind of long ago left their nomadism. If if they have that in their heritage, they've left it um, long ago, and. Whether or not that's true of their personal stories, certainly the kind of uh, reform-minded nationalism, which uh, is extant in the region before the Bolsheviks take over, doesn't really include nomadism as a feature of life that's going to be preserved. That whether you're talking to a uh, a local nationalist or other kind of reform-minded representative of Central Asia, I guess, or a Central Asian nation, or you're talking to the Communist Party, no one really seems to nomadism as anything other than a, a problem that needs to be solved.
0: And did nomadism, nomadism vary across different ethnic groups, or was it mostly geographic variances?
1: Um, the, it, it becomes complicated by the anthropology that's written in the Soviet period. And I spent some time in preparation for the book reading up on what the Soviet anthropologists Uh, and ethnologists thought about the interface, I guess, between ethnicity and nomadism. And um, it gives you an interesting insight into how the Soviet state thought and how the Communist Party thought, but it doesn't actually give you a great deal of information about what was um, kind of constituted reality on the ground. Um, There are definitely different tribal formations in, in the region that practice different forms of nomadism and there's also a geographical difference as well. If you head over to uh, what is now Kyrgyzstan, you have um, the mountainous region there that partly shapes and is shaped by the the nomadic practices. Whereas in um, the western part of Kazakhstan, nomads are migrating much more frequently, um often across the open steppe or around the the shoreline of the caspian sea so the landscape makes a big difference and the way that nomadism is practiced and where it's practiced also has had a contributory effect to how people identify themselves but the the principle of a kind of a a national uh um kazakh or kyrgyz as national identities don't really sit on top of um, differences in nomadic practice very well if that makes sense
0: yeah it does so how did the Soviet state think about and define nomads? Because I assume the categories that they put these people into really quickly start defining their lives.
1: Yes, um, especially in the case of nationalism. I think that the key thing to say first is just that my impression is the state, the Soviet state didn't think an awful lot about nomadism much at all. At least it didn't think about it very much proportionately in comparison to how significant a kind of phenomenon it was in the region and how much it's going to affect Soviet governance. Um, There's a lot of talk of nomadism, especially at the local level, but it's not um, part of an overall ideological view. It's not systematic. It's quite piecemeal. It's a kind of case-by-case thing. And the arguments that take place about nomads and how to govern them become quite personal and they become oriented around particular personalities within the Communist Party or figures who have um, perhaps been co-opted into the the Communist state but actually originate from other nationalist parties because they are significant in the early governance of the region as well before they're Persian in the 30s. Um, And there's a kind of a a plurality of thinking of course in, in the Communist Party this time anyway across a whole range of different issues. But where there are trends and uh, continuities in the way the party thinks about nomadism, it seems to be to be um, largely influenced by kind of pre-1917 prejudices based upon the way that Russians in the um, imperial space would have thought about non-Russians, and especially non-Russians who kind of live a, a very different lifestyle to themselves. So nomads are thought of as very much impoverished, um, disenfranchised, disempowered. And unproductive, that's another key feature of their practice. So they don't produce an awful lot of goods for themselves or for the state, and that's partly why they're so destitute. Of course, um, and this is a cycle that's going to be repeated in the Soviet era, the fact that nomads live an impoverish, impoverished life becomes part of the justification for claiming more of their pasture land and encouraging them themselves to settle. Because why would you want to continue a, a practice which is um, impoverishing its uh, the, the people who do it? But then, of course, by acquiring more pasture land and forcing them off their migratory routes, you're only encouraging or exacerbating that uh, poverty. And the the Soviet state does a similar thing as well in time. Um, There's a a surprisingly large amount of kind of open-minded scholarship about nomads, which is produced in the Soviet era as well by um, uh, academics who are allowed to continue their work under the Bolsheviks. And the only other thing I really think it's worth mentioning is that... um, the, there's no sense that I've picked up from the documents, at least reading you know, from the perspective of Communist Party officials, of nomadism being a, a kind of racial characteristic or being inherent to any particular ethnic group. Um, and that's very important because it, it's a kind of classic sort of Janus-faced effect that you see in different areas of Soviet thinking on non-Russian peoples, I suppose. The first is that no single national group can be condemned for nomadism. It's not possible to say in um Communist Party discussions that the Kazakhs or the Kyrgyz are inherently nomadic and therefore, you know, um beyond redemption or beyond the the, the, the effects of the state to modernise and to, to progress. But on the other hand that means nobody can be weeded out, that um everyone can change their lifestyle or their practice. And become more socialist, more communist. And so nomadism is kind of up for grabs. It's um, it's, it's a viable target for change and transformation, notwithstanding the fact that that's going to have an enormous effect on the way that nomadic people themselves live in a very short space of time.
0: Is it also considered backwards because of how it falls in Marx's hierarchy of historical progress?
1: Very definitely. Um, There is this argument that takes place in the early 20s about whether or not uh nomads and nomadic life has been affected by uh, early stage capitalism under the Tsar and therefore is it a class stratified um set of communities? And this is something that uh is always worthwhile getting across is that if a um if capitalism has you know made its way to a community in this in the communist way of thinking at this time that means that um, it has classes, and therefore it has kind of revolutionary potential, I suppose, because it has this 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 um, oppressed minor um, group in at the bottom of the hierarchy that might turn against the, the bourgeoisie. Um, initially, there is this argument that nomadism is more a kind of feudal society, um, and therefore is more homogeneous and uh, less kind of responsive to revolutionary change. Then that. That argument is lost, and there begins this emergence of a kind of three tier class structure with a middle class, a bourgeoisie, as represented locally by the Bai and the Manap. These are like local um, uh, tribal elders and such like. They become the, the, the equivalent of the kulak. And then you have the proletariat as well, or something comparable. In the end, uh, nomadic practice is described as um, nomadic feudalism, and uh, it's is definitely considered to be, as you say, at the at the beginning end of that kind of linear stage of Marxist progress that the Communist Party imagined. So it has to be forced forwards towards socialism and eventually communism, perhaps even at a faster rate than um, some communities in European Russia at the time.
0: So how did they go about determining, for example, who was a bi? I do a little work on... Um... Farms, collective farms, collectivization in European Russia. That you know, two horses is usually sort of a, a kiss of death <laughs> to be a kulak. But a lot of it also determines um, is determined on the local level by people who think maybe one group is more rich or one group isn't. Because I've seen them delineate two horse families into srednyak middle peasant households as well. And it appears to be a lot based on the standing in the community and in the Kirov region who supported the white army and who supported the red army. How did they go about making these distinctions in Central Asia?
1: Yes, right. So it's I, I would say it's a very similar process in some ways. Perhaps the only thing that the only key variable that's different is that um a lot of the operatives making these kind of decisions m- maybe uh understand local cultural norms a little bit less and there's a linguistic barrier as well. Where perhaps that's not so so much the case in rural Russia. Um but yes, yeah, sometimes a a by a you know a local nomadic despot, as they become understand as because they become understood, are identified because they have um, many more cattle than the local area, or perhaps just kind of in an absolute sense a lot more cattle than they are thought that they should. Um, and then as regions become more impoverished, then that, that definition, that quantitative definition of who is well off and who is um, a despot expands or becomes more elastic over time. But there's there is also a sense that. And because this is true um, for the for the Kazakhs, for example, themselves, they buy our lo- local um, elders and authority figures, and so they become um, uh, kind of lightning rods for resistance as far as the Communist Party is concerned, so it, it becomes easy to condemn them as well. Um, and there's been scholarship, for example, by Isabel O'Hayon on, on the way that increasingly local tribal um, representatives become embedded in the Communist Party and therefore in the Soviet system, and they use the power that they acquire in that way to identify people from other tribes or other communities who with whom they have some sort of competition. And so that becomes another way of identifying people um for persecution as well by the parties is that, that there's kind of local um grievances being resolved that have really have nothing to do with marxism obviously but um fuel that communist party's pursuit of uh, that despotic class as well
0: and so how do a lot of these negative attitudes uh affect how the soviet states tries to govern nomads i mean is there a sort of a forced settlement campaign like they do to the gypsies
1: not initially, no. Um very definitely settlement um is a goal for the Communist Party right from the beginning. But it's not realised straight away and it's not immediately a kind of violent campaign. Um, it can be very coercive in the mid-1920s, but it can also be done through incentives and sometimes it's it's um, a goal in name only, I suppose. So they all, the Communist Party uh, is almost entirely united in the fact that they want the nomads to settle, but there's arguments about whether or not that should be done through offering tax um, incentives, for example, like reductions in tax for those nomads who settle or being offered resources to help them set up farmsteads and help them practice sedentary agriculture and therefore settle that way. Uh, or whether it should be done by depriving nomads, you know, a kind of stick approach rather than a carrot approach, depriving nomads who kind of stubbornly refuse to settle of access to basic resources in water and reducing their migratory routes and that kind of thing so nomadism is to go there's, you know, there's no question about that but whether or not it's going to be a kind of natural process and nomadism is allowed to die or whether the party needs to take a more assertive line with it, that 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 kind of thing is up for debate um, it's not until during and after the collectivisation campaign in the early 1930s that we have sedentarisation um, which um, as it happens is, is more a kind of post hoc policy anyway as a, as a afterthought during collectivization. I think.
0: Is the Soviet State and Communist Party really able to exert much influence on the nomads in the 1920s? I mean can they physically find them? Do they have enough representatives to go out and enforce these policies?
1: It's The, the Communist Party are non-stop every day complaining about how little influence they have over nomadic communities. They, they really feel that there's very few levers that they can pull to effect change, which I think it partly speaks to the fact that it is a, you know, in a sense, an under-governed region. And that's true before the revolution as well as afterwards. But it also speaks to the ambitions of the Communist Party. I mean, they really want to um, effect change very rapidly, especially in these kind of regions. And they, they can't see why it hasn't happened more often. A lot of them predict Immediately after the Civil War, after the Revolution, that most nomads will give up the practice voluntarily anyway, because the, the fruits of socialism will be so self-evident that they'll just want to come in and, um, and settle because it's assumed that socialism will look and feel, I guess, more European and more settled than, than, than nomadism does. You
0: know, Do they have much of a way to get out to the nomads. Cause I see even in European Russia, you often have, you know, between 50 and a hundred people trying to rule this vast area on tiny tracks of roads where their main transportation is bicycles. And so, you know, in the winter, they're not going anywhere. You know, even in the thirties, the party has trouble exerting any sort of influence in the collective farms. Um, particularly during the winter, but just simply because of its small size. I would assume Central Asia would be even worse because it's bigger and more vast and even more sparsely governed and populated.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the um, in some ways, what the state does is it kind of forces the nomads to come to the state. But in other ways, the state makes Peculiar efforts to meet the nomads kind of halfway So uh, an interesting example is that they'll have these kind of regional um, Or administrative regions or territorial divisions that are kind of described as nomadic and they move around the step They move around the landscape So they what they really are is kind of a small community of people who are mobile and they're described as a county and You know taxed and administered that way um, as best the party can and the other kind of key way they, they do this is through the, the Red Yurt campaign, which is a, a set of mobile institutions that travel out to uh, nomadic communities and offer welfare and also propagandise and also try to recruit people to the Communist Party and that kind of thing. So that efforts are made very definitely. Um, on the other hand, especially in, in things like tax policy, the party... Um, eventually over the course of the 20s gives up on trying to govern nomadic regions differently in deference to the presence of nomadism as a lifestyle and so instead they just kind of, they begin to govern those regions as if they were sedentary and that causes all sorts of problems at ground level
0: so that leads me to my next question how do they deal with issues of land usage that had been problematic even under the czars
1: yeah i mean the the issue of land is obviously crucial to legitimizing the new Communist Party's regime, and um, it's also key to keeping the Central Asian regions um, deferential to the Communist Party and as part of the New Soviet Union, because it's such a controversial issue. And as well as there being a kind of class element to the way that um, land issues and land usage is thought of, there's also an ethnic Uh, component to that as well. So the party makes in the very early years some quite conspicuous efforts to demonstrate that land is being redistributed from Russian settlers uh, from the Tsarist era back to nomadic peoples and Central Asian peoples more generally. Now sometimes that's a spontaneous process that the Communist Party has just um, kind of retrospectively legitimated through legislation because uh, during the turmoil of the Civil War and afterwards Nomads simply show up in their old room uh, um, regions and reclaim them, and Europeans are sent packing back to European Russia very often. Um, as the administration perhaps takes on a bit more form and substance, very often the p- local party cells are petitioned about land disputes, and those go in the nomads' favour much more often than I probably expected before I started looking into this. So um, R- Russian farmers... Uh, complained because nomads have returned with their livestock and are pasturing their livestock in in Russian farmland. They talked to the Communist Party about this and the Communist Party says, well, um, you know, this is a a reparation being made for Tsarist um, crimes against um, Central Asian peoples. We need to give the land back. The peasants leave for European Russia. But as a kind of way of keeping the nomadic... Uh, I suppose keep maintaining the agenda of the communist party often the nomads are given this land back with the caveat that they promise to settle the land and become sedentary farmers because that's assumed to be more um, productive more economically efficient and it'll kind of improve their lifestyle as well now in the early years the party can make the nomads promise that all they all it wants but you know I don't think it gets its way very often but in the latter half of the 1920s uh, such as the condition for nomads and that the relative power of the party has increased. Um, that pledge that the nomads have to make to settle becomes harder to evade once they've made it and um, there are petitions of, for example, nomadic communities where half of the nomads have chosen to settle the land and uh, the other half of the community have refused and are continuing to migrate and the party has to sort out these arguments about who gets to use the land and in what way and sometimes some you know quite elaborate elaborate solutions are thought of where uh, nomads in principle cannot use the land to pasture because it's now farms but they need to walk through it to get to uh, wells and other water access points and so that has to be managed in a very kind of awkward kind of hodgepodge sort of way it's not systematic at all
0: And so had this land been adequately surveyed that they could give people land rights? Because I noticed even in the 1930s, they haven't done a particularly good job of surveying. So you often have overlapping land grants for collective farms. And a lot of times the way the land holding of a collective farm is described is by local landmarks, like to the nearest creek, by this big Mm -hmm. tree. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's all very, uh, it's it's guesswork, isn't it? A lot of the time. I I see that with as you say, with kind of landscape and um, uh, surveys of the land, and also with numbers, you know, how many livestock, how many people, it, it, it all just feels very much kind of on the back of an envelope, sort of um, calculations that are being made all the time. Um, and yes, there are overlapping claims, and the, the, the big um, common problem is that legislation has been passed early in the 1920s, often it's in this kind of anti-colonial spirit. You know, uh, the, the reign of the Tsar is over and the peoples of the former Russian Empire are now liberated in some sense. And so land is promised to nomads because they used to use it. But later on in the decade, the Communist Party, keen to get development underway, will identify a certain plot of land for maybe a huge state farm or perhaps an oil rig or, you know, the pursuit of some other natural resource. And the nomads show up and then there's a competition between the enormous drive to develop and to extract resources on the one hand and the other drive, which is to, I guess, in a sense, um, mitigate the effects of all this on nomadic people themselves and definitely with the big state projects like oil. Uh, extraction the nomads lose out you know every time but it's not been it's not been thought through it's it's a kind of uh, a problem the party has created for itself that it then resolves you know in the in the favor of one agenda over the other rather than so it's kind of it's a product often of huge mistakes that have been made rather than a deliberate policy of disenfranchisement although that's the effect
0: and so what effect does the soviet prioritization of creating ethno-national space have on nomads
1: Yeah, that's uh, something I give quite a lot of attention to in the book because I think it's a really interesting um, relationship that that is created, I guess, between nationalism on the one hand and nomadism on the other. And I think the thing that struck me about it when I was researching it was I'd assume that if you are creating a new national republic and, hypothetically at least, giving it over to the jurisdiction of that kind of ethno, eh, the titular ethnicity of that republic, you know, that Kazakhs are. Going to be uh, represented by the structures of the Kazakh Republic, then that's going to be good news for nomadic Kazakhs because they have um, a different status, I guess, within that republic than they might do elsewhere. Um, and that is part of the story, as I've tried to imply, I guess. The whole creation of national republics is partly about um, drawing a line between. Tsarist governance and communist governance, and demonstrating the difference between the two. Um, and so, Kazakh uh, republic level organs do give more concerted thought to nomadism. But the thing, a couple of things I kind of failed to um, think about before I started researching the book that, that really stood out to me. The first is that the Soviet nation building project is also a developmental project. It's believed that the creation of Soviet Sorry, national republics in Central Asia will facilitate and expedite economic development. That's corrosive to nomadism because nomadism is considered backwards. And so simultaneously the creation of these national republics is also supposed to um, er erode nomadism and and bring it to heel and eventually help it to dissipate. Um, And also crucially, and this goes way back to what I was saying at the beginning, nomadism isn't made a national characteristic for, for example, the Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz, um, and if you you know if you think about it, that would be accordingly uh, callous to do so because nomadism was thought of as so backward. So you'd be condemning a whole national group to to this kind of um, uh, undeveloped status. But the odd effect that's created by that um, is that um, n- national borders are drawn without any kind of proper reference to to nomadism. So, for example when there's a border dispute between a Russian region and a Kazakh region, um, you do have that argument between um, Russians and Kazakhs, and that might be resolved in the Kazakhs' favour, but you've got a simultaneous argument going on often between sedentary farmers, as represented by Russians, and uh, nomads, as represented by the Kazakhs. actually the party doesn't really want to resolve those disputes necessarily in the nomads favor because nomads are considered economically useless so you have this kind of um competition that takes place uh do do we um represent the interests of the kazakh republic but at the expense of you know productive farmers who are uh, contributing to the the soviet economy to the construction of socialism and again i think towards the beginning of the decade the decisions more often fall in the nomads' favour, but only, um, what, what would be the right word, um, uh, it's kind of indirectly in the nomads' favour, it's principally in the Kazakhs' favour, and they happen to be nomads. And then later on in the decade, there's more attention paid to economic behaviour, and so the nomads lose out more often, um, even within their own republic, because what's more considered more important is the, is the, is the um, support for and increase in farming. Um, so nationalism... It briefly cushions the blow, I guess, for nomadism. But in the longer term, it actually helps to expedite its its decline. Um, Kazakhs in the, uh, for example, in the structures of the Kazakh Republic, they want the Republic to develop and they want it to improve economically. And A, a big impulse therefore is, is to disincentivise nomadism or to get rid of it altogether.
0: Well, are there many nomads within the Kazakh power structure anyway?
1: I mean, uh, again, more than I thought, but in general, you know, uh, a, a, a big and I'm sure you'll you'll know this from research in European Russia, a a big, uh, important criterion you have to fulfil if you want to be a a significant member of the Communist Party is you have to be literate. And that has enormous demographic effects on the constitution of the Communist Party. And in Central Asia, that means that nomads uh, struggle to engage with the party and become more involved with it. And that obviously contributes to their disenfranchisement.
0: I have to say, in European Russia, the definition of illiterate appears to be kind of um, elastic, because I have some people that maybe finish second grade, and when you watch them write, it's like a small child, and they're in charge of things. I mean, it makes an absolute nightmare mess, because they aren't physically capable of doing their job, but yeah, they're pretty elastic on the definition of literate.
1: (laughs) And it it helps for me to keep that in mind sometimes, because i will be confronted with a document, and I couldn't make head nor tail of it, and I thought, this must be my fault. Or well, maybe maybe the writer of the document themselves didn't really know what they're doing. <laughs> you, you, that definitely came up for me too, yeah.
0: I always felt better when the archivist can't read it either.
1: <laughs> That's always reassuring.
0: <laughs> and are these borders between different states hard enough to prevent um, nomads from crossing them, like between Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, for example? Or are they soft enough that nomads, at least throughout Central Asia can still move?
1: Um, yeah, so obviously there are two kinds of border that emerge or take form at this time. You have the internal borders, uh, well I mean there's also there's administrative borders that have no kind of national um, element to them, and then you have the borders between the ethnic republics, for example between Kazakhstan and Turkestan, and then you have those external borders between for example Kazakhstan and China, etc. Um, and the um, borders aren't terribly well Policed within the Soviet Union, and it it isn't the same as migrating between two different countries altogether, but uh, you are moving in between different jurisdictions of different Communist Party branches when you go from one republic to another, and you're annoying administrators, and you're also annoying, for example, um, legal uh, professionals. Uh, There's some nice documentation I found, for example, around um, uh, Western Kazakhstan, where the local um, kind of legal representatives of one region want to pursue some nomads and arrest them for crimes, but they're always migrating. And it's like, you know, crossing the border from one legal jurisdiction to another means that it's much harder for the Soviet state to hold you to account at the local level, even if, uh, in principle, you're not leaving, you know, the Soviet state. So those things cause trouble. And um, the party find ways to punish nomads for frustrating administrative efforts by migrating, for example, uh, by having uh, um, items confiscated from them because they show up in a region or a republic that they shouldn't be. But um, obviously the the borders themselves between the the different ethnic republics within the Soviet Union um, don't function like national borders between two independent states. Not quite the same.
0: And was confiscation official party policy or was that something that locals did? Because I see a lot of... Uh, In the 1930s here in Kirov, a lot of local officials confiscating individual smallholders' property, everything from like teaspoons to Mm -hmm. tablecloths. And it's not official policy. They actually later get arrested in 1930 for doing it. But they're doing it, one, because the individual smallholders are frustrating them and two, because they're underfunded. So this is how they're filling in holes in the budget when they haven't been paid for months is by stealing their stuff and either keeping it or reselling it.
1: Right, yeah, I mean, uh, it's confiscation and kind of low level corruption comes in different forms, doesn't it? I mean, um, certainly I've I've read sources that suggest that um, border police or other administrative officials are considered to be just on the take um, and not fulfilling official policy. And I've I've definitely seen uh, evidence of that as well. Um and then partly it is also legislatively uh, justified or kind of um solicited, I think, or, or 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 um instructed by the central party organs. And then also I think there's a kind of broader sort of sense of um of what would be the right word, um not being able to not they can't be held to account. Um Kazakhs will often complain or Kyrgyz will complain that Russian officials tend to look after local Russians, look out for for themselves, and that, for example, some nomads might be taxed more heavily or suffer greater confiscation because of their ethnic difference from the person doing the confiscation. Uh, So that's a frequent complaint and it kind of implies corruption rather than state policy. Yeah, definitely.
0: And did some nomads flee the Soviet Union completely?
1: Uh, There's two uh, big waves of emigration from Central Asia. The first, I think, is in 1916 because of this uprising I mentioned earlier. And the second is uh, during collectivisation. And um, a lot of nomads go missing from uh, the administration at that time. I I think it's important to add a caveat to that, which is that obviously um, nomadic migration has long um, ignored the geopolitical or administrative uh, um, principles of the region. So there's long been migration in between the Russian Empire and China, uh, sometimes to the officials' frustration. Um, but the, the, we're talking about much bigger ways of immigration that aren't, you know, d- so typical the thing is that the party tends to uh, imagine that these people are, are migrating out of the country you know for for larger reasons than just kind of habitual migrate uh, agricultural practice all the time um, and the party tries to prevent that from happening sometimes through um, uh, uh, militia or violence and sometimes by punishing them on their return so it makes it harder for them to return without for example having to pay some sort of fine for it, that kind of thing.
0: And so are the people that migrated out into China, the current um, Chinese Muslim Turkmen people who are currently being rounded up and oppressed by the Chinese government? Is it that same ethnic group?
1: uh, We have Uyghurs and, yeah, yeah, Kazakhs. Um, I think primarily... So there are ethnic Kazakhs in Xinjiang, in Western China as well. Um, Yes, and... So there have been ethnic Kazakhs I know from recent reports who have uh made their way into these China, these reeducation camps. It seems like a pretty desperate situation yeah so there's there's a um uh, perhaps partial legacies of this in in what's happening today.
0: So you also devote a whole chapter to Soviet tax policy um, Could you explain why this is important for the study of nomadism because certainly I don't even do my own taxes. <laughs> 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 I pay someone to deal with it Because I don't want to know how it works <laughs> No, I
1: mean I I, uh, I felt I had to figure it out It was one of the denser chapters To un, kind of unravel from the documentation Because there's a lot of different institutions Involved in this story But it it turned out to be a very important story Once I put it all together I mean, I, I, got, back, I, I got back from the archives With a lot of documents that didn't seem necessary To talk to each other directly And then uh, when I kind of put them all in a line I saw that there was a, a clear timeline of events here Um tax policy is uh, important because obviously the extraction of tax is an absolutely key component of the relationship between a state and its population its citizenship um, and a lot of the things we've already spoken about the difficulty of governing nomads their refusal to sit still those things are manifested in tax policy absolutely perhaps more than anywhere else and unlike some other kind of policies of the state or the party like welfare distribution or literacy um, very definitely the state is incentivized to extract tax and, and to do it to everybody. So in the early years there's a very interesting albeit brief acknowledgement that the nomadic economy such as it is, is uh, struggling more than the many other communities in Central Asia, a lot of the sedentary communities for example, and that therefore it sh- nomads shouldn't be taxed as heavily as some of those other uh, communities uh, because it will drive them to destitution Um, And so for a brief period, people are uh, not taxed or taxed less on the basis that they are nomads rather than anything else. That is quickly superseded by this nation-making agenda or or the the recognition of national identities in Central Asia. And as I've said, the interaction there between uh, nationalism and nomadism uh, is complex. And what it does is it means that increasingly... If there's going to be tax um, uh, incentives or reductions in place it's going to be for Kyrgyz or Kazakhs not for nomads versus settlers and um, that actually makes it harder for the nomads because uh, the, the the tax policy is, is levied on on, for example nomadic Kazakhs uh, at the same rate often that it is sedentary Kazakhs even though there's a kind of distinctive difference between the way the two groups um, produce economically speaking um, all the same uh, agricultural organs especially argue for uh, tax incentives to encourage nomads to settle um, the big problem there is that if a tax collector goes out to a group of nomads and that says uh, "Have you settled permanently because if you have you'll pay less tax of course they're going to say yes and then the next morning they pack up and continue with their migration having paid last less, less tax and there are limited options to chase them off into the steppe and reclaim the rest of the tax they're supposed to have paid. So financial organs aren't keen on this at all. And um, following an argument in the mid-1920s, uh, tax policy becomes more oriented around class and um, uh, and counting livestock. And uh, that's bad news for nomads again as well. Uh, we've already said, of course, that the identification of uh, the rich, the kulak, the buy, the manap, the, the, the local despots, that, that's something that becomes a kind of political tool as well as an economic one. And so nomads lose out. But there, there's a brief period in which nomadism is protected so that the party has that capacity. Uh, it's just that the, the national agenda and then eventually this um, emphasis on development, they, they, they uh, push that to the sidelines and uh, nomadism suffers.
0: And how is tax assessed? Is it tax in kind or is it monetary tax?
1: It's a, it's explicitly tax in kind initially, and then it becomes um it, it becomes monetized. But I think most um, nomads continue to pay tax in um kind of I don't know what the right phrase would be like primary resources, so butter or milk or um, in kind in, in livestock. That's right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because I know uh, with the collective farms, it becomes very difficult to pay a lot of times in money because they don't make a lot of money. You know, they're given things like butter, milk, grain for their work days. And they often have to have people go work abroad or um, outside of the region or in factories to make money. And there's this
1: this habit, isn't there, of selling your produce to acquire the money that you can then – give to the state in tax, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of lose out twice in two transactions rather than one. Yeah. Well,
0: in Kirov, we have a lot of people engaged in with the seasonal migratory labour at mm. And so that tends to be here, at least, the primary way of making extra cash, primarily in uh, forestry, which I assume is not really the case in Central Asia. Do they have to send family members to work in factories to help make ends meet, or is it not a problem?
1: So I know that some do... Um, uh kind of period work on farms but there's so little urbanization in the region that it's difficult i think to um although very definitely um matthew payne i think for example has written on the habit of nomads to contribute to kind of larger industrial or infrastructural projects projects but um uh, i've not seen much evidence that it's I mean, it's very geographically delimited, isn't it? So there are whole swathes of Central Asia where that kind of work isn't available anyway.
0: And so how does the Soviet state try to reach out towards nomads other than these sort of negative things like, um, you know, tax policy? Are there any sort of positive outreach programs?
1: Well, tax can be positive. No um...
0: <laughs> No one likes taxes. <laughs> no,
1: one likes that. Um, no one does that with joy. I, the, so, um, Yes, the state uh, is, in, you know, pushing heavily for an increase in literacy in nomadic regions as it is elsewhere in the Soviet Union. Very definitely, the provision of resources to help them settle. So you mentioned that, you know, uh, there's not a lot of timber available in parts of Central Asia. So the party at least pledges to provide timber to construct households and farmsteads for no less to live in if they choose to settle I think very often these are offers that are made in principle but never make their way to the ground level I think a lot of it um, reads as fantastical really um, uh, assumption that the party has far more resources to hand than it actually does um, and the other thing that it, uh, it offers is uh, party membership, propagandizing, and also it, it has a, a a keen interest in changing the gender relationships in nomadic communities. So um, there's a lot of campaigning for the emancipation of women in the in the domestic sphere as well. And nomads are invited to conferences on um, things as. Domestic as childcare and the correct uh, upbringing of children and then all the way up to, you know, the, the basics of Marxism and Leninism and that kind of thing. So the, the party is not put off by the nomadic lifestyle in the sense that it, it wants to, um, uh, you know, affect a kind of a propaganda change, a, a change in mentality there as much as it does anywhere else in the Soviet Union, I think.
0: And are uh, nomadic women subject to the same liberation and unveiling campaigns that uh, settled Central Asian women are subject to?
1: I mean, I, th- uh, I think the era I focus on, there's less of that anyway. There's less of the kind of militant atheism perhaps that, that kind of bubbles up to the surface right a little bit later on. Um, but also there's a funny um, parallel between early Soviet thinking and Cyrus thinking, which is that the Soviet state, or at least the Communist Party, tends to think of nomadic women as less uh, oppressed Within their own communities, than sedentary Central Asian women, especially in places that you know now known as Uzbekistan, for example, are thought of as being, and that's because the nomadic lifestyle is considered to be kind of informal, uh, less structured, and therefore it's harder to keep women out of the public realm, albeit within the nomadic community. Uh, it's harder to um, keep them separate from. Um, public affairs and decision-making and that kind of thing. And um, men and women all seem to kind of pitch in together on the same domestic chores. This is how the Communist Party thinks of uh, nomadic women. And that's in a sense, that's comparable to the way that in a certain period in the Tsarist era, nomads were considered to be less uh, devoutly Islamic. Than other Central Asians, because again the lifestyle was thought of as being kind of less um, appropriate for devout religious practice. How, you know, Tsarist officials asked themselves how nomads would know which direction to pray to Mecca, they can't go to mosque regularly, that kind of thing. And so the reason that that's similar is because the Tsar- Tsarist um, state thought that nomads would be more kind of receptive to Orthodox Christianity because their commitment to Islam was less strong. That was the thinking and in the same way um in the communist party it was thought that because women are less uh oppressed and, and less um restricted in their lives if they're nomadic that means that they're going to be um more enthusiastic about socialism and more kind of keen to get involved with the communist party and more keen to contribute overall to the construction of socialism i guess so um women were absolutely targeted but um their, uh, you know, kind of forced emancipation was perhaps less aggressive than it, than it became in pl- in places like Uzbekistan. I think.
0: So you write that collectivization haunts each chapter of the book. Why is that? And how was the nomadic experience of collectivization different from more well known collectivization efforts, say in Ukraine?
1: Um, there's been a. a, a a report and an editorial just came out just recently didn't it in the Wall Street Journal from Sarah Cameron about the um the forgotten Soviet famine so the the effects of collectivization in Kazakhstan are particularly uh, acute and destructive in comparison to some other parts of the Soviet Union um the the Kazakh people suffer enormously as a result of collectivisation. And although my book focuses um, very deliberately on the period before collectivization because I wanted to tell a different story about um, less how nomadism comes to an end uh, in large parts of Central Asia, not entirely, but in large parts of Central Asia, uh, I wanted to talk about how the party tried to manage it in the intervening years and, and you know, what happens to communism when it hits nomadic realities in, in parts of Central Asia. Anyway, the... It haunts the book because um, it's what's coming. It's it's the end of the story. In in the late 1920s, um, Philip Goloshokin, who's the um, first secretary of the Communist Party there, uh, centralises power and he pursues collectivisation slightly earlier and more aggressively than elsewhere. Um, And the famine that um, results from collectivisation hits nomads particularly hard. Um, a lot of them uh, suffer from famine or epidemics and we mentioned sedentarization earlier so this is when the party starts to make uh, forced efforts to uh, bring nomads to collective farms and to, and to force them to settle um, and retrospectively in Soviet historiography now that, that's presented as a deliberate policy so after or during collectivization, the nomads were settled in a big campaign um, what it actually is is the kind of the end results of an enormously disruptive policy. So collectivisation occurs and then the, the party has an awful lot of uh, refugees, people migrating just to survive, not because they, they're nomadic per se. And they are obviously, um, their migrations are pro- brought to an end and they're brought to a particular settlement point and forced to, to reside there rather than kind of travel the countryside in, in search of food. The demographic impact is enormous and, and really catastrophic. Um, and, uh, The the effect in Kyrgyzstan, I think, is less acute, but similarly, the outcome of the collectivization campaign in Central Asia is that nomadism as a practice is reduced dramatically um, and becomes really um, something you see only in the very peripheries of the the region.
0: Is there any argument that collectivization and the famine that results has any sort of national or ethnic animus? You know, like the Ukrainian Holodomor, I personally don't like that argument, but I know that that is often made that Stalin hated Ukrainians and this was a way to get rid of them.
1: Yes, there, there is talk of uh, genocide being perpetrated against particular national ethnic groups in um, Central Asia. I'm not best placed to judge that claim, having focused more on nomadism than, you know, ethnic differences and national differences uh the deaths in Central Asia are highly ethnicised, you know they, they they uh they hit certain groups more than others um and i guess th- it's it's the final evidence of the fact that um the party's greater concern for national difference rather than kind of a difference of lifestyle or agricultural practice um can have uh, really awful uh, consequences because they're not necessarily considering the impact um, the, the differential impact that uh, collectivization is going to have on uh, migratory communities as opposed to sedentary communities I think that's it's worth saying that at least
0: Okay, well thank you for being on the podcast are you working on anything new?
1: Um I, I, there's a couple of projects that I'm sort of clearing up now that kind of emerged from the PhD in the book but weren't really part of it. So I'm writing a little bit about uh, Communist Party politics in Kyrgyzstan at the moment and also uh, some stuff on British involvement in the civil war and their interaction with Turkish, uh, sorry, Turkmen tribes. Um, so either end of the 1920s, either end of the decade, there's some bits and bobs that I'm tying up. And then, uh, and then I'll be moving on to my next project, which I'm still kind of in the process of formulating it's it's nice because after the phd you spend so long kind of clearing up uh whatever you've done during your doctorate and then and then you finally get to think again about how you'll you'll move forward with the research so i'm quite excited about what i might do next i'm keeping options open
0: always good Mm. well thank you for being on it's been wonderful to have you
1: not at all thank you for having me definitely